0: So my name is Anja Klotze and my work seeks to combine theoretical developments of ground penetrating radar full phone version to enhance subsurface imaging and to apply this to a wide range of different applications within the critical zone.
1: Welcome to Seismic Sound Off, exploring the depth and usefulness of geophysics for the scientific community and the public. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. The heterogeneous near-surface has been increasingly exploited for human needs such as water supply, to store our waste, and food production. To assess the environmental risk associated with such exploitation and exploration, the near-surface must be investigated and characterized with high-resolution methods to enhance our understanding of hydrological and biogeochemical processes. In this conversation, Anya Klotscha discusses her near-surface global lecture Unlocking the Potential of GPR for Subsurface Characterization by Using Full Waveform Inversion. Anya describes the recent developments in FWI that have impacted how to apply GPR. She outlines a few of her favorite GPR applications, the impact of AI on GPR, and the role GPR and FWI can have in improving management decisions. Anya also shares the lightbulb moment when she realized her method was special and why she changed her mind about hydrogeophysics and em methods. This episode will challenge you to consider gpr in a new way and in so doing put fwi in a new perspective as well. To register for her upcoming lecture on June 21st or September 12th, visit seg.org/podcast or check out the episode's show notes where you're listening. And now my conversation with Anya Klakstja. And speaking of GPR, that's what we're here to talk about, your near-surface lecture. And that's titled, Unlocking the Potential of GPR for Subsurface Characterization by Using Full Waveform Inversion. Why has characterizing the near-surface taken on greater need in recent times?
0: Yeah, well, I think I could actually just talk about this for hours. But yeah, of course, like in the recent years, The near surface, or also the critical zone, as we also like to call it in the end, has, of course, increasingly been exploited for our human needs, like starting from agriculture, drinking water supplies, or storing our waste in the end, right? So to access also the environmental risks that are associated with this, uh, we also need to find better ways to sustainable manage our resources in the end so and also therefore we need a better understanding how our subsurface in the end is built up so in terms of geology hydrogeology biochemical and also geotechnical conditions in the last decades and especially since we have the hydrogeophysics community coming up uh, we also have increasingly um, applied geophysical methods to the critical zone And it was quite successful in the end to map aquifers, for example, and also monitor various processes with many different applications, so starting like electrical methods, EM methods, but also, of course, ground-penetrating radar. But since the critical zone, of course, is also quite complex and challenging in many aspects, we also have seen that there are small-scale structures that could have a pretty large impact on flow and transport processes, just for example like preferential flow paths or capillary barriers or impermeable clay lenses. So they can be pretty bad, actually, in terms of the modeling if you do not consider them. So, of course, there was also then this driving need in the community that we also need to get a hand on the small scale processes to really enhance our large scale models in the end. And that's why also, of course, in the community, we started looking out like, okay, what can we do? Which methods can help us there? And what can we also maybe do in terms of data processing, how we can find links also to small-scale processes, maybe like in biochemistry and these things. And that's where we are at the moment that we see this force in high-resolution methods, but also methods getting these links to those processes.
1: Well, speaking of those efforts you are taking, what made you realize that there was this unlocked potential for ground-penetrating radar so, actually,
0: during my first conference that I attended, so shortly after I finished my master thesis, I also was doing then, or I started my PhD thesis then in Jülich, I was lucky to attend the 13th uh, International Conference for Ground Penetrating Radar in Italy, in Lecce. So, this was in 2010, and I was also lucky that I could present them my work for my master thesis, where I I think I was actually one of the first applying the GPR full waveform version for crossword data to experimental data. And I showed the results there. And then, really, during this uh, entire conference, I started realizing oh, I do something special here because people normally just looked at structural changes, maybe at permittivities or velocities, but they never hardly looked at electrical conductivity changes or like high resolution images. So I really saw there like that I have a pretty nice method and that there's so much potential which can still be explored. And therefore, I also continued like my entire research life with this method because there's so much potential behind.
1: So you, you just kind of knew that that's that's great that when you when you start sharing this information, you really start to see what's clicking and, and what is different about your work. And going more to developments with full waveform inversion, how have those developments over those past five years impacted ways to apply GPR in this field?
0: Yeah, I think it's two things there. So, since we also started the developments and especially for the application with the cross-hold GPR for waveform inversion, we have seen that it's kind of, I want to say, kind of an established approach in a while to do it like for crosshaul applications. Like if you go to aquifers or these kind of things. So we have been a while I think, investigated more than 50 to 60 different aquifers. We came up there always with just high resolution images for permittivity and electrical conductivity. And we do now such funny things that we monitor salt and heat traces, which were like never things that you have done before with GPR in the end. So these were typical G- uh, EOT targets in the end. So there we are now that we can do these things and have this high resolution images because it's so nicely constrained in the end. When we then look a bit more in terms of surface application, there's of course, of course, it's driving force. We want to do everything from the surface. It's very nicer to to like, don't need this expensive balls, of course, but there are challenges, the most challenge or the biggest challenge that we have there is pretty much related to that. You need a good model combined with your inversion, version. And of course there are then also the computational burdens involved. So. I believe that you, if you really want to do surface GPR of waveform inversion, you need a 3D forward model. And in the last five years, or maybe a bit longer already, we have now these great tools around. So like, uh, for example, GPR Max is an open source forward modeler for GPR. And it's so easy to use. And it provides basically the 3D option so easily. And of course, with the developments that we have, like with all the HPC clusters, you can easily apply it now. So you have now the possibility to link these things with your inversions and really go towards 3D. And also the the developments uh, in terms of the manufacturers, actually. So there were like two pushes in the last years that we now have multi-channel devices. So we always had the problem that we didn't have enough surface data or took a lot of time to actually measure the data. And now with these multi-channel devices, it's, of course, way easier to do it. So I also foreseen a little bit that in the next years we also do, do big jumps there now.
1: Yeah, I love how all of these different developments feed into the work you're doing. You know, you got high performance computing, you got these new ways of collecting the data that just really add to your work. What are some of your favorite applications to utilize GPR?
0: Of course, I love agrifers and cross applications because that's where I'm coming from, right? So it's so easy to do for me. It's so nicely constrained since you have to do boreholes and Most of the time, you just get beautiful results. And then you can, of course, play around with the processes, get into like, okay, what can we do? What can we monitor? What can we out there? And how can we help? And of course, a hydrogeologist, for example. But of course, that's boring if you just do this all the time. So uh, I also like peatlands and permafrost soils because, I mean, they're so important for our climate change. And I think also there's a huge potential still hidden of what we can do there with the GPR away from inversion actually to find gas traps or like to really map the, the boundaries there inside the the peatlands and these kind of things. And what's also quite nice is I like challenges, of course, <laughs> uh, because that's also driving I think developments and these kind of things. I like agricultural investigations meanwhile. And so since some years I'm pretty much focusing on this on like. How can we use GPR, so in terms of boreholes but on the surface, to really look into how agricultural plants like maize or wheat affect GPR signals? And how can we use this information together with the waveform version to get us a little bit a hand on this? So of course we will never be able to like map like these little fine roots, but we can see the effects of it, like how is the water distribution changing related to the plants close by and these kind of things. And also all of it with the idea behind how we can use this information to also agriculture management. Uh, this is totally challenging and not many people are doing this because it's so small, of course. But yeah, that's where I'm wild driving to.
1: How do you see artificial intelligence impacting the future of GPR?
0: It already does, I would say. So there are certain applications where it's applied already to. Uh, and where it also will come way more, I think, in future. I mean, of course, this driving force is also coming here the same way. Like when you have pretty nice, constrained questions, like if you go for civil engineering questions, these kind of things, or so very we well-defined uh, problems, there definitely will play a big role in future. But I think also, so I'm a little bit hesitating all the time, but um, that's also more related to that if you go, for example, for aquifers, you have so many numbers of unknowns. So, and therefore, to really do it in this way, there, I think it will take more time. But I guess in the future, this is definitely something we always need to consider in the end or should.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. We're, we're my partner and I are planning a trip to Portugal right now, and it's pretty easy to put into artificial intelligence what are the must see seats in Lisbon? You know, those are not unknowns. But if you're talking about anything in the near servers, very different. So, that makes a lot of sense. You're a little hesitant there. And and at the end of the day, a lot of this work that you're doing, you know, just maybe not you, but just in general geoscientists, you know, they're sending this work to managers who have to make a decision on what, what you're finding. So what role can GPR and FWI have in improving the decisions that they're making at the end of the day?
0: I think that we also need to consider a little bit like on the time aspect. So if you want like a real time decision, we are a little bit yeah, we need more time, let's say, it this way. And so, of course, we are still in developing modus and many applications now. So, we just think about like, I mean, seismic full waveform version is like there for 50 years. And so now it's a standard method. And we basically just started like 10 years ago. So, we still need to advertise more and also have a bit more understanding of the things. But, like, the real time stuff, I think they're also here if you have special cases, like if you, like in civil engineering, like road thicknesses or very defined environments or finding like cylindrical objects in the subsurface as pipes, I think in future could be something like that. it really like you already have a decision maybe in the field using full waveform version, but it should be defined environments because you need always still computing powers to do this. If you look in terms of, for example, aquifers, if you have a contamination and you want to know where they are, Of course, cross-soled GPF away from a version is excellent to do this because you can find this contamination, you can pretty nicely locate them, and then just do your cleaning up, especially at this location. And
1: this, of course, is easy to do, I think. How do you go about balancing the role of theoretical models with applied applications to the near surface?
0: I think it's totally relevant and important. So that's how I always build up my science. So just doing theoretical developments and never applying it I think that's not a good way I think you always need to keep in mind like okay how's the real world actually working how is data looking like what is affecting you in the field and also is it still applicable to do it actually so but also in contrast it's also good to understand what you measure and therefore you always need models as well so I think it's really important to do this hand in hand so I do this pretty often like when I go on aquifers and I see, for example, wave guiding events in my data, I also go back and take my final models and see how the wave is actually really behaving and if my data is really explained with this, you know, so I really, I think it's important this back and forth and combine it, not just too long.
1: Well, you will be sharing your experience and knowledge with, with an audience very soon, uh, about a week before this episode comes out and then again in September what do you see as the goal of your lecture?
0: Also here, two things, I would say. So first of all, I like also to connect again. So I think COVID and the pandemic kind of kicked us all away from this. So that you are having like living conversations, like if you do a presentation and talk to persons and really start up also maybe new thinkings, new ideas, new projects maybe. And I think it's nice to also go out there again and advertise uh, the method, but also getting a feedback to this as well. And on the other hand, I think it's also, it's maybe a message that I would like to show is that GPR is not bad. <laughs> so there are some people, I mean, there's like one hand people that love GPR and would love just to do a GPR for the rest of their life. But there are also people that are totally hesitating or have bad thinking about it because there were like wrong promises and these kind of things. And that's has been around a lot. And I think it's nice also to show to people and researchers like, hey, GPR has really a huge potential. Of course, it's not working all the time. I mean, we have issues, of course, but still it's a great method. And in terms, especially for hydrogeophysics, it's so nice to apply it in the end. And I want to take this fear a little bit away. And like also hopefully people are showing like, hey, it's maybe something also for your work and how it may be complementary could work with
1: other methods as well. Who do you envision as the the perfect audience for this talk? I
0: would of course love to say everybody. Um, <laughs> it's like, of course, um I think it's good for students to see what's like really out there because I think Gpr full waveform version is hardly taught at the universities or shown there, so that's kind of really something new. It's nice to see the potential of it, and that's also GPR is able to do like permittivity and electrical conductivity at the same time, and that we can use this potential. But of course also to scientists overall to see the possibilities and maybe also really consider it for their future applications or current applications
1: and projects too what is a question you hope attendees might ask themselves after this lecture i kind of this actually like would gpr
0: maybe also work for my application i mean it does not just of course full wave formal version but it's also like gpr in general and what i have seen a lot in my career was like of course gpr doesn't work with clay for example but it's so nice to be complementary with electromagnetic induction together for example on the field scale so if you have both methods there one of them will definitely work in a good way in best case both will work and then you really have two different data sets that you can combine and i think that would be great if people just go out there and maybe we think okay would gpr work okay if i already do
1: gpr hey could i do full waveform version what inspired you to utilize your experience and expertise in hydrogeophysics to help others assess this environmental risk of exploring the critical zone?
0: So that's actually a funny story. Um so if you would ask my younger self like 20 years ago, uh, I would have told you like I don't want to do hydrogeophysics. And I don't want to do EM methods, you know, that's boring. I I want to do seismics or something like that. So um I kind of grew up in my studies and found out that like, hey, hydrogeophysics is actually quite cool, but at the same time also GPR. So I saw during my master thesis the huge potential of this method in connection with the hydrogeophysics. And of course, then I broadened my view in many things, but I think it's so such a great tool and so nice to apply in hydrogeophysics in so many different environments. And I also have the feeling that since we are totally in climate change. We have changing weather conditions. We should better react on extreme events. We also need to, of course, in terms of agriculture, use better our soils and our resources that we have. And there of course we really can play a role with the hydrogeophysics there. And that's my hope as well, that world we'll benefits from this one day.
1: What have you gained yourself by putting this lecture together and, and participating in, in these upcoming talks?
0: It's kind of concentrating again on the topic. So since I'm working a lot currently on the like the root soil imaging stuff, is of course a pretty big focus on this. But of course, getting a step back and say, okay, what do we have here? Where are we standing? What can we do? And kind of showing the entire history a little bit of it and the potential in terms of scales. I think that was quite nice to combine this again and also to have something to really show to the world like, hey, here's a potential.
1: Why, why is improving the understanding of the near surface and this potential of GPR important to you?
0: Yeah, as I mentioned, I mean, I also grew up in a region uh, where we had a lot of troubles with floods, for example. So we always needed to react somehow. And I wasn't pretty much fascinated, of course, by the processes involved with this like heavy rainfalls, so how things are acting and when I started studying geophysics at a certain point, it also came clear like, hey, it's cool to map things, but it's also I really want to understand things like I want to go into the processes. I want to link it. And then, of course, how could we use this to predict problems in the end?
1: Sort of lastly here, what principle teaching or even experiences has helped you succeed in your field? I have the feeling everybody's saying this, but I had
0: pretty great teachers actually. So, um, when I started my master's, I I did a joint master program with the TU Delft, ETH Zurich, and the the RWTH Aachen. And I was there like traveling back and forth between the universities. And especially like in Delft and in Zurich, there were just so great teachers for near surface geophysics. And they were like really not just like telling us things, but they really started us like to think, think about problems, how would you solve these kind of things? And they also basically let us allow doing mistakes, because I always think mistakes are so important as well, because then you learn things, how you shouldn't do it and maybe find a better solution. And if you question always problems as well, then you also find other better solutions. And this kind of continued also during my master time and my uh, PhD, when I was in Eulich, so I always had the freedom to really define my research and my interests, but also when i did things that were maybe not that smart somebody told me at a certain point okay stop it change a bit of direction and look at it later again and see what you did maybe not greatly and that's how it happened in the end and that's also something what i really tried to do as well to be a good teacher to my students in the end and still learning of course but yeah
1: well, this is a great foundation for that talk. You you clearly know this topic well. You spoke very clearly and concisely and to it today. And uh, I got excited hearing about this. So I imagine people even uh, more more educated in it is going to be as excited to, to hear it too. So I'm excited to see what comes of this. And, and thank you for taking the time here to, to share about it. Yeah, it's actually quite fun. You reached the end of Seismic Sound Off, Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to be the first to know about the next episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Two of my favorites are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have episode ideas, feedback for the show, or want to sponsor a future episode, visit seg.org slash podcast and find the box titled Contact Seismic Sound Off. Zach Bridges created original music for this show. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Garriott-Treasurement. The SEG Podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Allie McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.